and uh, would love for you to be able to invest in our children and helping them come to know Jesus as their Savior. If you turn in your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read verses 14 through 16 together. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to that throne of mercy even now. That throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace. Will you give us the grace we need? Thank you that you've been with us throughout this service and that you've received our praise and our prayers and you have declared to us the forgiveness of sins which is ours in Jesus. And now, O oh God, we have this highlight of this time when we hear from you through the preaching of your word. We pray that you'll overcome the weaknesses of me, the preacher, and of us, the uh, listeners to the sermon. And that instead your spirit will hold absolute sway in each of our hearts and that you'll change our lives. We do pray for our children, O God, and we beg you that you, according to your faithful mercies and the promises which you made to our father Abraham, that you would bring these children to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that their, the faith which they see in their parents and in their family will become their faith. Please accomplish this through our children's worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll say it again, we have a magnificent salvation, don't we? And when you really think about the significance of, of God taking us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we who were living in rebellion against God, who hated God, and he's gripped us and he's got a hold of us, he's brought us into life, he's made us into uh, his sons and daughters and we love and adore him, that's a magnificent salvation. As a salvation, he didn't just bring us into his kingdom as, as his servants or the citizens of heaven. He wasn't satisfied with that. He demanded that we would be his sons and daughters, that we would have that intimate relationship with him for all eternity. That is a magnificent salvation. Amen? We need to learn to meditate on that more. And, and that's a part of what we're going to try to do this morning is, is to take some time and meditate on this magnificent salvation, which is ours. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but uh, maybe if I move over here. Okay. Um, as, as a pastor, I'm, I'm given opportunities to um, be involved in, in people's lives, uh, both in, in highlights of their life, uh, you know, the, the birth of a new child, and, and to be with a, a couple uh, on their wedding day, and as a child comes, and, and these wonderful events uh, that I'm, I'm allowed to be there, not just as an officiant, but, but really brought in, and, and also through some of the hard times and the difficulties. Uh, of life that I'm, I'm able to be there, and and so I, I'm able to experience uh, people sharing what's going on in their lives, and even so, there are times in which the sharing is just a little bit deeper, and maybe you've experienced it when someone opens up and shares something about their life, and you know that they're being really transparent. 
that they're giving you insight into their heart. And maybe they're even articulating something that they don't even say to themselves very often. But it's coming out. In one such instance, I was uh, talking to a dear saint. And she was sharing, we were talking about uh, John 14. And Jesus says that there are many mansions for us. And he's going to prepare a place for us. And she says, well, my, my hope is that when I get to heaven, that I'll have a, a little bungalow on the backside of heaven where I don't really get in God's way. And it wasn't pretending to be humble. You know, it, it, was, it was clear. This was a real moment in which this is the reality of where her heart was. And she wasn't saying it to get sympathy. She was just saying this is, this is what she anticipates. And as we spent time just kind of talking about that, and it, it opened up a door for me to be able to talk to her about her incredible value in the kingdom and how much God just adores her as an individual. It taught me as a pastor how important it is for us to, to apply the gospel to individual lives, not just to us collectively, but to begin to see the unique value of every single individual. And that each one of us is beloved of God, not just y'all, or in true Southernese, all y'all, are, uh, are, are loved by God, but to recognize that you are. And so it was important for me to, to learn that lesson and to uh, consider that and, and to think about how to uh, articulate that. But also as I think about it, it comes to my mind that it's kind of easy for us to maybe live our Christian life that way here on earth. That our goal of the life is, you know, I love God, I, I believe in His Son, and I just want to keep out of His way. I just don't want to cause a problem. That's a pretty low bar for the Christian life, isn't it? I just, just don't, don't, don't let me get in God's way, you know. Some of us aim for a little bit higher, but, but, but that's the reality, and we can live our life that way. And it isn't just new to us in, in, in our day and age. I believe it's been the case for believers probably going back to uh, just after Adam and Eve. I think of the first century Jews. And it, we, we, we talk about them frequently as we're going through Hebrews because that's who this book was written to. And so it's important for us to understand their culture and understand what they were experiencing, what their society was like, and what were they facing because then we're able to understand what this message really means. And if you think about what you see about the first century Jews from the, from the Gospels, and what you, what you see there is, for the most part, for the rank and file, the, the, the average Jew at that time, it seems like maybe their goal was just to kind of not get in God's way, right? I mean, had the priests who would offer the sacrifices for them, would go into the temple and pray for them, and w would take care of all the religious rites, and that was good. They'd, they'd do what they need to do. They'd, they'd buy their turtle dove and give it to the priest, and the priest can go do with it whatever he needs to do, right? And they're, they're, they're done. Um, and then they had the Pharisees. The Pharisees would study really hard. You know, they'd, they'd know what the Scripture is. They could tell them what the Scripture is. And then for the rest, they just kind of, if you look at just the normal believers, they were just kind of, I'm just keeping out of God's way. Right? I just don't want to be a problem. And they're just going through life. And that temptation was there. And it's a temptation for us in our lives. And, and we can feel that way um, as, as well. And I think that the author of Hebrews recognized that. And I think that's why there are a few different places in this book in which he gives a special invitation. And this is one of those. 
And in this one, he's saying to just the, the, the rank and file believer, he's saying, you don't have to just wander through life hoping to stay out of God's way. Instead, you are invited by God himself to come all the way in up to the very throne of God himself. That's where you're invited to come to. To the very throne of grace. Will you come? That's our invitation. If I'm going to come to the throne of grace, I'm going to have to, first of all, come with my high priest. Come with your high priest. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He talks about a great high priest. And uh, what's kind of fun about that is the, the Greek word that's translated as great is uh, a word that you actually probably have used in your life, maybe you use it quite a bit. The, the Greek word translated great is mega. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus is our mega high priest? Yeah. Yes, he is. He's our mega high priest. And I don't have to really describe what it means, do I? If that's what the Greek word is, you, you, okay, I got that. I know what mega is, right? Right? I, I, I know what, if, if you would, a, a happy meal might be at McDonald's, but can you imagine a mega happy meal? Yeah, I got that. I know precisely. You know what a high priest is? He's the mega high priest. He's our great high priest. He's not the same as the earthly high priest. He exceeds the earthly high priest. And remember, these first century Jews knew what the high priest was. They knew who the high priest was. They held him in high regard. But here he's saying Jesus is far beyond that. There is a, an incident in John chapter 18 that I want us to, to consider together of this moment in which our great high priest is being interviewed by the earthly high priest. And just, just think about the significance of that and the irony in these words. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he'd said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? The question could have come back and said, is that the way you deal with the great high priest? Here is this individual seeking to defend the high priest by striking the great high priest. Here is this individual who's saying, you have not treated the high priest with enough honor, therefore I will dishonor you who are the great high priest. And the irony of this moment is striking, particularly when we think of the fact that Jesus is at this moment really entering into his high priestly uh, actions, is he not? He's preparing to die on our behalf. And this is what's taking place between the earthly high priest and the great high priest. I continue on with this idea of, of uh, the, the priesthood and, and the idea of the uh, Jews 
of wanting to keep some level of distance and of, of recognizing our, our, our priests worship God for us, etc. We look back at Exodus chapter 20, which is where we receive the, the Ten Commandments are, are given by God. And let's remember, it's, it's difficult for us when we think about that event, we have a tendency to think more about Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of it than we think about the Bible's description of it. We think that Cecil B. DeMille is right, that, that what happened was the people were all gathered together, Moses went up on the mountain, got the law, comes back down, and there the people in ignorance have made the golden calf. And that's not what happened at all. All of the people gathered around, and all of the people together heard the very voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. That's what happened. And we read about the response then as we look at verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. That They wanted someone to stand between them and God. They wanted someone else to hear the voice of God and speak it to them. They were terrified of hearing the voice of God directly. They were afraid of that moment. And so they asked Moses to receive it on their behalf. But our great high priest offers to go with us to the throne room. As a matter of fact, he invites us. Maybe invites is a little bit soft. Um, invites, I, I have a friend who told a story that they were encouraged to go see someone and they didn't. And then their friend walked up and grabbed them by the wrist and said, Come with me. <laughs> And I think that's kind of the invitation Jesus gives us, right? <laughs> in other words, we don't have to go into the throne room alone. We do need a mediator, but the mediator isn't willing to go in alone either. He goes in with us. We go in with our high priest. To do that, we've got to own his atoning sacrifice for us. To own his atoning sacrifice. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... What does that mean? Passed through the heavens. I was out here the other day, I saw a goldfinch. It took off and it looked like it was passing through the heavens, right? Is that, is that all he's talking about? You know, is he flitting around? What, what does pass through the heavens mean? It's, it's an, an odd phrase for us. It's, it's new to our ears. We, we kind of have some nebulous idea of what it may kind of mean. Okay, so he was God, he became man, so that's passed through the heavens. Is that what it's talking about? I think it's way more significant than that. And the book of Hebrews is the key to help us understand what that means as he talks about the priesthood of Jesus in other places. For instance, he talks about Jesus' priesthood in, in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who is taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. He's talking to these Jews who are aware of the tabernacle. They're aware of the temple. They've gone to the temple. They see the temple. They know what it is. They know where it is. They know what's going on. But they also understand that that temple is a symbol. That temple is, is just an image of, of the spiritual temple, which is the place where God dwells in all of His glory. That place where Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up with the angels declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And He says, Woe is me. They know of that place. They're aware of that place. They're aware that that's the real place. They know that this is just an image. They know this is just a shadow. And Jesus passing through the heavens means Jesus didn't settle down in that shadow. Jesus went to the real one. 
Jesus went to the very presence of the Father because Jesus dwells there. Jesus, who says, I and the Father are one, has been to that place. That's what it is to pass through the heavens. It's expanded in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Read, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Once again, he's making that distinction. He's beginning to show us that what, what Jesus did was just far greater. He's helping us understand what it means that he passed through the heavens. And that is to say that he passed through the heavenly tabernacle. He passed before the mercy seat of God, the real mercy seat of God. Not the image that we have here, but the one where God is. And they recognized that the one here on earth had to be cleansed. And the priests would come in and they would sprinkle the, the, the blood upon all of the elements. They'd, they'd sprinkle it upon the veil. They'd enter the veil. They'd sprinkle it upon the altar and all of that because it had to be cleansed. But the blood of bulls and goats does nothing in heaven. It's useless. It's just bulls and goats. Jesus went into the holy of holies with his own atoning blood. With his blood that was shed, he took his own blood and he sprinkled the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly holy of holies, the heavenly mercy seat with his very blood. That's what it is that Jesus passed through the heavens. It's speaking to us of his atoning sacrifice. And then a little bit earlier in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We need to own the atoning sacrifice of Jesus because he passed through the heavens. There's no one else who has gone in to the true tabernacle, to offer sacrifices on our behalf. There's no one else who has given his blood that we might have salvation. And so we recognize that he's passed through the heavens and therefore let us hold fast our confession. Verse 14 says, hold fast our confession. The, the word translated as confession is uh, from the, the Greek word homologeo, which means uh, same word, the same word. That's our confession, the same word. First of all, it's the same word that God speaks. That's a confession. We confess our sins, that is, we say about our sins, the, the same thing that God says about them. But there's another element that we, as the people of God, have the same word. There are certain things that all who are believers in this world, from Adam through the last saint who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, believe. All of us hold the same thing. We hold fast that confession, that same word, that same idea, that same gospel message. And that same gospel message is first and foremost, it begins, I am guilty. I justly deserve God's wrath and displeasure. That's where I start. That's what Adam understood. That's what Abraham knew. That's what David knew. That's what all of the disciples knew. That's what John the Baptist knew. 
That's what John Wesley knew. That's what John Calvin knew. That's what Billy Graham knew. That's what we know. And that word we all declare together and we hold fast to that reality. I cannot get to heaven by my own deeds because I am guilty. Because I justly deserve His wrath and displeasure. Which leads to the second word, the second aspect of that confession that we hold. And that is that Jesus paid my debt fully. Every saint from Adam through eternity believes that Jesus died for their sins. Adam didn't know his name originally, but he knew that God would send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And he knew that one would give him salvation. And we know his name. And we hold fast that confession that I am guilty and Jesus paid my debt. Friends, Make that confession your own today. This day, now, now is the time. God is calling everyone here to make this your confession. Hold fast that confession. If you have never gone to God and said to Him, Father, I know that I have sinned against you and I'm guilty, do so now. And then say, and I cling to Jesus. Forgive me because of what He's done on my behalf. Make that your own this day to enter in to the throne of grace with your high priest, you must own his atoning sacrifice. And then you must find comfort in his compassion. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I'm pretty sure that uh, Microsoft Word's grammar check would uh, scold us for verse 15, right? It doesn't seem to like double negatives very much. It would have been a whole lot simpler if he had simply said, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? But there's an elegance, there's a beauty, but that's all he's trying to say. He's just communicating to us that our high priest has sympathy for us. He has compassion for us. You see, he understands. He understands what we're facing. He understands what we're being tempted by, for it says he's been tempted in all things as we are. I want to offer a definition of temptation, which I think is helpful. And thus far, I think definitions are, are good. You come up with it and, and you stick with it until you find out that there are certain situations where it doesn't fit and then you throw it out. But I think a temptation is uh, an opportunity to sin. Simple as that. Simple as that. And that's, that's the same for Jesus as it is for us. So he's tempted in all things as we are. He had all the opportunities for sin that we have. Now, for us, they're, they're somewhat uh, exacerbated just because of our own uh, sinful desires, which he did not have. But the concept of temptation remains the same. It's an opportunity to sin. And that's heightened when you go through trials, isn't it? When you go through difficulties, it's, 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 the temptation is, is kind of a little bit harder. Um, I think that's why the translation uh, of the same word for temptation is translated as trial in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, various temptations recognizing that they're the same. Um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, an alcoholic will be told to uh, be wary when they face a halt. There's a halt situation, H-A-L-T. That is when they're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Right? Each of those are trials we face, isn't it? And, and you understand, you know, you can, you can be tempted to sin when you're hungry. We call it hangry, Right? Um, and that's, that's a reality in our experience. When I'm hungry, I'm, 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 I'm weaker. When I'm angry already, I'm weaker. And think about the Lord Jesus. He faced hunger, did he not? 
Wasn't there a fast of 40 days early in his ministry? And he was tempted to turn the rocks into bread, right? He was angry. There's one point, and there's only one point in the uh, New Testament where it tells us Jesus was angry. And that's in Mark, I think it's chapter 2, when Jesus was there, and there was a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And all the Pharisees were looking around and saying, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath day and, and violate it? And instead of helping the man, they chose at this moment, this man who was suffering, this man who was oppressed, they would prefer that he remain in his suffering and his oppression that they might be able to bring an accusation against the high priest, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' response was he was filled with anger at that moment, at the callousness to this man's suffering. Jesus was lonely, was he not? Absolutely. And talk about tired. He slept in the back of a boat in the middle of a massive storm. That sounds to me like he was whipped, right? Jesus faced all of those temptations, just like us. Isn't that helpful? Doesn't that give us some comfort? We have support groups, right, for for different things that we go through in our lives. I mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous. The point of Alcoholics Anonymous is here's a group of people who understand the unique temptation alcohol has in a person's life. And as we get together, because we've all faced this together, we know everybody in this room understands, and that comforts me. doesn't change the fact I have to make the decision to be there and not drink, but it comforts me. We have our refuge ministry, which is a support group for, for women who are survivors of abuse. It's a time for them to get together, and they don't have to explain what it's like. And sometimes when they're with, with people who don't, have never experienced it, they, they, they don't necessarily intuitively understand what's going on, and so they have to explain all of it, and it's, it's a little bit harder. It's a little more work. But as they get together with others who have walked through that, it's comforting because they know, they understand. You have a high priest who can sympathize because he's been tempted in all things as you are yet without sin. Look to Jesus who has faced all of these trials and temptations as you face the trials and temptations. Look to Jesus. Look to Him and know He's faced this. He knows. He understands. And then be empowered by His consecration. He faced those temptations Without sin. Jesus was tempted. Sometimes we think we're doing him a favor by pretending that, uh, well, he's God, so he wasn't really tempted. The, the problem is then we're saying to the Bible, it's wrong. I found in my life that's usually a wrong sentence to ever say, right? The Bible is truth, and I'm going to believe it. And so I understand that he was tempted. Yet, without sin... He was so completely and fully consecrated to the Father that he never gave in, even though he had all of those opportunities to sin. I'm going to talk for just a moment, uh, some some theology, if you can. You know, every now and then, last week, I think I gave you a Hebrew lesson, and uh, so this week we'll use a, a little theology. And the doctrine of justification and what's what that means, we'll we'll use it. Um, and we use it in, in various different ways, but uh, justification, when we're talking about it theologically, has, has two aspects to it. 
when I first became a Christian and early in my ministry, um, one of those aspects was emphasized at the exclusion of the other. And now in my ministry, I'm finding that the other is being uh, emphasized to the exclusion of the first. And it's interesting watching the theological shiftings that have taken place in the 28 years that I've been a pastor. Justification is God forgiving us of our sins and imputing the righteousness of Jesus to us. Okay? That's the two aspects of justification. He forgives our sins and he imputes or credits us with Jesus' righteousness. Simple illustration is uh, forgiving our sin is like taking off our, our filthy clothes. Imputed righteousness is, is he gives us Jesus' clothes and puts them on us. Does that make sense? That's what justification is. When I first came into the ministry, we, we ignored the imputed righteousness of Christ. It, you would find guys who would rarely talk about that. And now it's very common that you'll have guys who never talk about forgiveness of sin. And uh, I think there are theological reasons for that, and, and, and I see where all that's going. But, but in recognizing those two elements, I think it's important. So that when we receive the righteousness of Christ, that's his obedience that is, is, is imputed to us. Because our obedience is never enough, right? Now, it's very easy to be able to say, okay, so Jesus obeyed, so I don't have to? Well, technically, you don't have to, um, but you do, right? And you want to, and you long to, and the Spirit moves in you to be able to bring about that obedience. That's That's a reality. I want us to understand that Jesus' justification of us is powerful. When I was first writing out my outlines, the first couple ideas that I had on this point were that I need to be motivated by Jesus' consecration, right? That was my first thought, motivated, you know? And I thought, yeah. And it was like, it misses something because I recognize I'm motivated by Vince Lombardi. I really am. I, I, I love Vince Lombardi. I, I've read a biography about him. I, I, I try to find different things that he says. I, I think uh, he it just motivates me. It's like, yes, this is, you know, even this morning I I saw some quote of of Lombardi and it's the one everybody knows, you know, we'll never reach perfection, but if we aim at it, we'll touch excellence. Exactly. You know, and, and, and that motivates me. It's like, yes, I'm in. So I changed to inspires. Right? First off, that's a little more spiritual, right? That's, that's kind of cool. So that's good to have in a sermon. You want to have that every now and then. That's what Dr. Zell would say. That's a 50-cent word right there, Vince. And uh, so, so thinking about that, and that's okay. But that's not quite it either, because frankly, I'm also inspired by Rocky. I know it's a little cheesy and a little corny, but I love Rocky. I, I just, it just gets me fired. Right now, I've got the, the, the going to fly or whatever it is uh, going through my mind. I'm seeing Philadelphia. It's like, it's, it's all there. I'm, I'm, I'm in, and, and, and I'm inspired by that. But frankly, Jesus' justification does a whole lot more for me. His consecration does a whole lot more for me than Rocky or Vince Lombardi, doesn't it? Because it actually empowers me. There's an illustration that I want you to look at. This kind of shows the relationship of the doctrines of regeneration, conversion, justification, and sanctification. And that you see the farmer, and what he's planting is the gospel. And he's spreading the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel hits the soil, which are the hearts of men, and it sinks down into the hearts. And what happens underneath the ground is regeneration, that life begins, but no one can see it. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and he changes us, and he makes someone alive, no one else can see it until they reach conversion. That's where it breaks the ground. And conversion is faith and repentance, when the person believes and repents. We read about that uh, even, even this morning in our uh, catechism. 
What happens after that is justification. That's when we we stand before the tribunal of God and he forgives us of our sins and he credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. And that becomes the trunk of the tree. The trunk of the tree is the strength of the tree, right? The trunk of the tree is the, the conduit through which the life which is underneath the ground comes up through it into all the branches that it might produce fruit, which is what sanctification is. And if I think about Jesus' consecration in that way, I begin to find out it's more than motivation. It's more than inspiration. It is the very power, and I mean the, the energy, the ability for me to obey as I trust that He indeed has forgiven me and He lived a righteous life on my behalf. It transforms me that it might produce sanctification. Come to the throne of grace and come with your high priest and believe that he meets your needs. Verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do you need I read a, an article this last week of an uh, uh, individual who, who wrote about needs and, and you know, are, are we needy people? And uh, was really trying to critique psychology, which I think is, is right and proper. But, um, but in it, they kind of threw out the whole concept of need and saying, well, we're not needy people. And I'm sorry, anything that's created by another needs the other by definition, right? I mean, just... It couldn't bring itself into existence, so therefore it needs. We do need, but we are sloppy in the way that we use the word needs, aren't we? we I, I need a break, right? Do I really need a break? Uh, you know, I think it's an overstatement uh, and, and uh, to, to be able to understand what I mean by need. Oh, I need some eggs, right? Well, what do you need eggs for? Well, if I'm going to make an omelet, I've got to have eggs, right? Right, so I need, egg, egg, so I need eggs. Do you need to make an omelet? Oh, well, yeah, put it that way, maybe not, but, you know. And so we use it this way, and to begin to, to recognize, what do I really need? And I think the best way to understand what I need is to begin to ask myself, what would happen if I didn't have that, right? Whatever that might be. I need insurance, right? Or I need a job, or I need, uh, you know, even family or friends. What happens if they're not there? What happens if I don't have a job? Well, I'll lose my house, right? Okay, what happens if you lose your house? Well, I'll have to sleep out of doors. Okay, well, what happens if you have to sleep out of doors? Well, I might catch some disease and die. Okay, then what? Oh, <laughs> that's what I need then, isn't it? What's going to take care of me once I die? That's what I need. And I think it's important for us to, to recognize that because we go to the throne of grace to receive what we need. Psalm 73, 25, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you it is our nothing on earth. That's the reality of our need. It's just Jesus. So you need his mercy. You don't just need mercy. You need his mercy. You need his mercy. I think it was uh, Robin's father years ago was explaining to me the difference between grace and mercy. The man was so patient with me as a new Christian. I asked a lot of dumb questions, but sometimes it was a good one. And he explained to me uh, the difference between grace and mercy. He says, grace, 
Grace is when you're given something you don't deserve. Mercy is when what you do deserve is withheld from you. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good understanding of the difference between grace and mercy. It's maybe not completely perfect, but it's, it's pretty close. Matter of fact, in uh, Matthew chapter 18, we see uh, a picture of mercy. Are you familiar with the story of the uh, unjust servant? That's a servant who owned his uh, master like a, a billion dollars. And the master comes to him and says, give me the money or I'm throwing you into prison. He says, oh, give me a little bit of time. I'll pay you back. Right? And the master's like, oh, okay. And so he has compassion on him. And then the man goes out and he finds someone who owes him 20 bucks. And, and he throttles him and threatens to throw him into jail or throws him into jail and, until he pay me back. And, and he's brought before the king. Well, in Matthew 18, we have that uh, for us. I'm going to read two different verses. The first is the, the man's first uh, audience with the, the master. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And the second one is uh, the second meeting. And he says, uh, the master then says to him, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the reason I want to read both of these is to understand that verse 33 tells us that in verse 27, the master was showing him mercy, right? So what we see in verse 27 is mercy. What we see there is our understanding. This is what Jesus wanted to convey mercy was. Mercy is, verse 27, that he has compassion on him. First thing, he has sympathy for the man. That's the beginning of mercy, is that there is some connection, some sympathy, some understanding of the struggles and the, the, the hardship, the passion the other person is facing. The second part is, he released him. That is, the second part is the removal of our punishment. And the third, be sure I'm following through with where I'm wanting to go with this. Sometimes I get ahead of myself. The, the removal of punishment. And the third is he forgave the debt. Not interesting. Mercy involved compassion, the removal of punishment, and the forgiveness of the debt. That's what the man should have done to the individual who owed him 20 bucks because that's the mercy that he'd received. Think about that. That God has had compassion on you. He's removed the punishment that is justly yours to pay. And he has completely forgiven the debt so that he can say, your sins and iniquities I remember no more. Wow. That's a magnificent salvation. That is mercy that we need. I think I'd like to encourage us to have a practical application of that as, he, as, as we're told to pray to come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. I believe that true prayer always comes with an eye to God's mercy. With an awareness of God's mercy. Maybe, if you will, even within the atmosphere of mercy. Sometimes we pray almost as though we deserve it, right? Almost as though God owes it to us. Sometimes we just pray thinking, and, and people you know, complain about this, that we're, we're praying almost like giving Santa uh, his, uh, his Christmas list, right? But what if at the heart of every prayer that I pray is a sense of God's mercy? Even when I praise him, 
that I can only praise God because of the mercy that He's shown me. And my ability to praise Him is a mercy that He's given me. Makes me a little more thankful, doesn't it? What if I become more aware of the mercy that's at, at play in my life all the time? Robin, her uh, most prayed prayer, I could probably look at her and she would, she would be able to pray it right here. And that's, thank God nothing bad just happened. Right? The reality is we could probably pray that incessantly, couldn't we? But it's a mindset in which she's aware of the active mercy of God at all times. We come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because you need grace as well. Grace is his undeserved favor. His undeserved favor. Jerry Bridges, who was a leader of uh, uh, Navigators for a number of years, wrote a book called Transforming Grace. Um, by the cover, you probably know about when it was written. Um, uh, there many covers looked that way at that time. But um, he describes grace in this way, and I just found this to be really helpful. He says, we are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we're glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. Amen? To recognize how desperately we need His grace every moment. That we are continually in need of that grace. There are three ways in which He gives us grace regularly. They call them the means of grace. And the first of those is prayer. When we pray, we receive grace. When we as a congregation gather together and an individual up here leads us in prayer for the needs that are listed in the uh, bulletin, God bestows upon us as we pray grace that strengthens us and encourages us and draws us closer to Him. He also gives grace to those to whom we pray. He strengthens them. We don't understand how. Don't need to know how. That's, in, that's above our pay grade. Right? That's for God to handle. The second is Scripture. The Word of God is a means of grace. We read the Word of God because God gives us grace and I, I preach the Word of God so that God will give grace to all of us. The grace that we need to stand firm in the midst of trial. The grace that we need to come to know Him as our Savior. And the third is the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we receive these, we receive grace. We'll be reading about that in the, the next week or two as we continue through our uh, catechism as it will talk about uh, what uh, our question today uh, alluded to. And that was when it asked the, the question of what does God require of us? And it ends, he says, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. That is, the means of grace. Now do you notice as I mentioned the three means of grace? how our worship service is designed around those? 
It's designed around prayer. It's designed around uh, the, the Word of God. It's designed around the sacraments. And we find them to be central in our worship. We begin to recognize that so that we might be receiving the grace of God. So you need His mercy. You need His grace. And I guess I'd like to say, and maybe this will help really pay close attention, if you miss the rest of what I've said, please get this. You belong to God. I want you to understand that. You who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you belong to God. <clears throat> Back in Hebrews, we look at verse 16 again. He says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence. He doesn't say, let us draw near to the throne of grace, does he? He says, let us draw near with confidence. And sometimes when we talk about our need for grace, it's easy for us to drop the idea of confidence and say, well, we can't be confident if we need grace. We can't be confident if we need mercy. But we can have confidence if we belong to God. And by understanding what this word means, I want to, to consider it to, together. Um, it, the, the, the Greek word is parousia. Um, and uh, that probably didn't bless your soul at all, but uh, I, I felt like I probably ought to say it. Um, and, I, and I want to read to you from the Theological Dictionary of New Testament, which is uh, edited by Kittle um, and is the supreme uh, lexicon, if you will, of, of the Greek, uh, of New Testament Greek. And uh, here's, here's what it says about this. Now you'll see the quote, I changed parousia to the word confidence, because that's just its translation, just so that we can get it, and it's kind of awkward for us to be looking at uh, this Greek word all the time. So in content, confidence is freedom of access to God, authority to enter the sanctuary, openness for the new and living way which Jesus has restored for us. This confidence is given with the blood of Jesus and is grounded in his high priestly way. The saving work of Jesus, which penetrates all the heavens, has created confidence and made its fulfillment possible. Confidence works itself out in the confidence and openness which need not be ashamed when it stands before the judge. That's confidence. That's the confidence that we're talking about. That's the confidence that he says here, that we're to go to the throne of grace with this type of confidence, this confidence which is aware of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's uh, used to translate uh, a section from the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 26. Um, and uh, what, what you have is the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek which uh, both helps us understand the Hebrew and helps us understand the Greek. And there's one word in, Exodus, or in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13, uh, that uh, this parousia is used to translate. And so as we read this verse, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The word that we translate as confidence is translated in this as walk erect. And so again, as the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament talks about its use in the Septuagint, it has this to say, that this confidence is a mark of the free man as distinct from the doulos, or the slave. The difference between a free man and a slave. The man who knows that he's free and has no fear of being enslaved, and the one who has lived his entire life under the ownership of another human being, unable to do their own will. Think about it. Reminds me of a story that I was told years ago of two slave traders watching a slave ship being emptied. 
And as they look on the gangway and they see one of the slaves coming down who's standing erect and looking around and looking people in the eye. And one man turns to the other and says, what's up with this guy? He says, that guy? He's a son of a king and he just won't forget it. Amen. Amen. That man knew to whom he belonged. And he wasn't going to give up on it. He wasn't going to forget it. He remembered it at all times. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence, that's our word, of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like one of the marks of being with Jesus is confidence. One of the marks of being with Jesus is I know that I belong to Him, and I'm not going to forget it no matter what the world may say. I belong to Him. He rightly is my Lord, my Savior, my elder brother. I belong to Him. And therefore, I have confidence to go to Him. Because I belong to Jesus, I'm confident to go to the throne of grace. Reminds me of someone trying to retell the story of the thief on the cross. And what happened after he heard those faithful words from Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. He continued to suffer. And eventually, he closed his eyes to this life and he opened them up. And there were the pearly gates. There was glory itself. And as he walks up and he's greeted, and he's asked, why are you here? And he says, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Amen? Because the man on the middle cross said, you belong to me. You can come to that throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Horatius Monar was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century. And he wrote what to me is, is the deepest uh, devotional I've ever read. Um, first off, it's, it's rare for anyone at that time of uh, an age to have written something this thin Right, um, but uh, and it's even got a little print. It's still this thin, but so th- th- that's that's rare. Beautiful devotional called the Rent Veil, and he's just thinking about what does it mean that the veil was rent in two. What is the significance of that? You think I'm something, for, you know, that I want to preach a, on just two verses in in one week. This whole book is on two words, right? Rent veil. That's all he's, he's looking at. And he does a great job. It's just magnificent. And he has this to say because he recognizes he's talking about another place in Hebrews because Hebrews continually does this. It, it's inviting people to come in, inviting them to come, inviting them to come. And he has this to say about coming, and it applies to coming to the throne of grace. He says, let us respond to the message and at once draw near. To stand afar off or even upon the threshold is to deny and dishonor the provision made for our entrance as well as to incur the awful peril of remaining outside the one place of safety or blessedness. To enter in is our only security and our only joy. But we must go in in a spirit and attitude becoming the provision made for us. If that provision has been insufficient, we must come hesitatingly, 
doubtingly, as men who can only venture on an uncertain hope of being welcomed. If the veil be not wholly rent, if the blood be not thoroughly sprinkled, or be in itself insufficient, if the mercy seat be not wholly what its name implies, a seat of mercy, a throne of grace, if the high priest be not sufficiently compassionate and loving, or if there be not sufficient evidence that these things are so, the sinner may come doubtingly and uncertainly. But if the veil be fully rent and the blood be of divine value and potency and the mercy seat be really the place of grace and the high priest full of love to the sinner, then every shadow of a reason for doubt is swept utterly away. Not to come with boldness is the sin. Not to come in the full assurance of faith is the presumption. Amen. What a great salvation Jesus has provided for us. What a magnificent salvation. Jesus invites you to come to the throne of grace. Come with your high priest, believing that he meets your needs. Let's pray. Father, we have prayed about coming into the throne of grace. We have meditated upon this for several minutes. And now we come. We come to you with confidence because Jesus bid us to come. And because he comes here with us, we come not on our own, but we come in the blood that has been shed on our behalf. For he who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, has bid us to come. And we ask you, our God, to receive us. And I pray, O oh God, for every person who is here today, if there's anyone who has not put their trust in you before this day, I pray that they will trust you even now and cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, receive them and draw them into your throne of grace. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.